We said goodbye to Poland, Belgium, Italy, and to the brilliant story of Iceland. While penalty kicks came into play, we saw some quality football with tactical systems in general outweighing the brilliance of individual performances. Hello and welcome to this July 3rd edition of the Eurocopa podcast. I'm your host, Nipun Chopra. Thanks for joining us. In order to review the four games in the Europe, European uh, Championship quarterfinals and preview the midweek semifinals, I am joined by Robert Hay, Karthik Krishnayar, and Kristen Henach will be joining us very soon. Gentlemen, welcome. Karthik, Robert, let's get started with the Poland-Portugal game. It ended in a draw, went to PKs, uh, and in general, it, it had some similarities to the Portugal-Croatia game, the uh, round of 16 game. A little more exciting than that. And Karthik, it started with, uh, with uh, Renato Sanchez started this game. And one of the observations you had made was that uh, when I asked you why he didn't start, you rightly pointed out that midfield might lose a little bit of its structure. And you were right because uh, the, the first Lewandowski goal did come from a ball played into just that kind of area. Um, and from at that point, I actually thought Poland uh, took the foot off the pedal after that a little bit. Yeah, I was real disappointed. I thought they were going to really put Portugal to the sword with Sanchez kind of having this free role or this roaming role or or what appeared to be a free and roaming role. Who knows if that's what Santos had intended when he opted to start him. Uh, Joe Matin- Joe Matinho keeps the shape much better, but has not had a good tournament, right? So mm-hmm. we talked about that in the previous show. But I was uh, I was very disappointed that Poland didn't push on from their create a couple more chances in the first half while Portugal were wobbly as Portugal uh, fell, uh, found themselves in the game and, and got their feet settled. Then they, um, they ended up uh, getting that goal back obviously. And, and then uh, were the better team for, for much of the game. Definitely. I, I thought so too. And, and Robert will, will stick with the Sanchez thing because at this point we're talking about a player who's still 18, 19 years old, but in a game that had the likes of Lewandowski Cristiano Ronaldo, Nani, Ricardo Quaresma, etc., etc. It really was Renato Sanchez that took away all the headlines with his overall play, his goal, as well as the PK he scored in the shootout. Yeah, in a in a tournament that's seen some great goals, that was another great one by him. So I think that's the first thing that gets attention here. Uh, his his. Uh, goal to tie up the match. Uh, you know, the other thing is, I think it gave a little bit, you know, to, to kind of echo what Kardec said, uh, it helped a little bit with the uh, Portugal's tactics. You know, it, it gave them, uh, he, I think, interacted well with Nani and Ronaldo when he needed to, and just gave some fresh legs, I think, to this team. So mm-hmm. I think it was yeah. a good time to start and uh, a good use of his playing. Um, and it, you know, would he would this have been the same way if we would have played earlier? Probably not. So I think it's a good good timing. It makes all the difference in these tournaments. You know what he who he reminds me, Karthik, of uh, Renato Sanchez. That is, he reminds me, uh, and you have to hear me out before you laugh. Is Anderson the the Brazilian? When Anderson was first signed by United, he played. He was 18 years old. Uh, was an attacking player, kind of looked, he even had the same physical uh, attributes that Renato Sanchez does. They about have the same height, play the similar position. They both drive from midfield, try to uh, link up mid- the midfield and the forward line. And then uh, the reason I brought this up is in his very first game, Anderson came up against Gerard in because uh, United played Liverpool. And I, we're talking peak Gerard here, Gerard at his best. And Anderson was by far the best midfielder that day. So I guess from that perspective, the the big challenge for a player like Renato Sanchez, who really has the world at his feet, is to make sure that he goes the Pogba route and not the Anderson route, because the talent is there, uh, the ability is there, and he has to make sure he stays injury-free and, and stays out of uh, off-field problems. Yeah, I, I think Anderson for for a time was actually a pretty effective player. Yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly in a United team that had a lot of talent, had had a good midfield, and he was able to rotate through. and And Ferguson was able to use him in, in certain spots against certain opposition uh, to great effect. And and um, then he just completely tailed off, as did a, a number of the players that were signed in that period by Manchester mm-hmm. United. Yeah. So uh, he was he was far from alone in, in that category. I mean, I think of the Silva twins and and uh, Nani and and even. If you, if you want to make this case, guys like Johnny Evans and Darren Fletcher really kind of tailed off around the same time mm-hmm. as effective players. Uh, but I think Sanchez is a guy that 
we don't want to see get too hyped now at this age. He's going to Bayern. That created enough hype. And then I right. see Bayern fans saying, well, with him in our midfield, we're going to win the Champions League. He's still a teenager. He's still a guy you can't rely on game in and game out. And mm-hmm. this is the problem with international tournaments. It's such a small sample size. And we talk about the small sample size and uh, few data points over and over again when we talk about international football and contrast it with the grind that is the Premier League or the Bundesliga or Serie A or whatever league uh, you fancy, that um, it is much easier for players who are 16, 17, 18, I think, to have a run of maybe not 16, but 17, 18, 19, to have a run of games where they're very effective in an international tournament, which is kind of a bang, bang, bang thing rather than to show the, and develop the type of consistency they need uh, to be effective footballers uh, at the club level over a long period of time. So my fear now with Renato Sanchez is he's getting so hyped off of this Euro tournament, mm-hmm. off of his uh, last season and signing with Bayern before the tournament, that um, we could be in a situation where we, we've overhyped another youngster and he never reaches the, the level we thought he would reach. And uh, I, I look at uh, Bayern as a club that has had a lot of guys that are young players that are very good at, at 18 or 19 that sometimes aren't so good at 25 or 26. And uh, Shakiri is an example of a player like that right now yeah. um, who, who tailed off, who was very good at 19 and, and 20 at Bayern. And now at Stoke city, he's just kind of very hit or miss. And I think he's only 23 or 24 now. Wow. Yeah, no, that's a good shout with Shakiri. I think a lot of those uh, players that went to Barcelona at that time, Afalai, I mean, basically the, the current, Stoke City forward line uh, can can be uh, argued <laughs> to be that way. Uh, Robert, let's talk about Cristiano because uh, in this game, we in this tournament rather, we, we've been looking forward to watching these players like Cristiano and, and uh, Lewandowski. And, and in this game, we saw Lewandowski actually have a better game overall. And interestingly, um, it felt like Cristiano kind of struggled uh, throughout the game. Yep. Uh, welcome to the tournament, Robert Lewandowski. We've been mentioning that you've been gone, and lo and behold, in the first few minutes, you make your mark. Um, probably could have had a few more chances. I, I thought that Poland could have done a little bit more with some of the space in the, in the midfield, but uh, it was not to be, at least uh, you know during regular run of play. Um, Cristiano, I think, I mean, his struggles have been throughout this tournament, uh, whether it's just finally, you know, legs catching up to him a little bit or the shape. Of Portugal's uh, play or the the opponents. I mean, he hasn't been like the pedestal we put it on. That being said, you know, he has the opportunity, you know, with at least in this next game and possibly a game after to kind of cement his legacy. Whereas if he were to score a key goal, make a key play, uh, you know, convert another penalty, something like that, um, a lot of these criticisms will go away. And really his lack of form that we've seen in this tournament so far um, becomes a moot point. And what's remembered is the success that this uh, Portugal team has. Yeah. You know, the thing, the thing is though, I, I find it quite interesting. Welcome Chris. That Robert makes, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's interesting that Robert makes that point about Ronaldo needing that big moment. I felt he kind of did that against Hungary. Maybe, maybe I'm completely alone in that mm. and thinking that there was a moment where he did kind of drag them back. And, I have been fortunate enough this month to to kind of sit and watch Lionel Messi endure a similar situation of being that talismanic figure for a country. The difference being that Portugal, as a nation, I think unanimously accepts and adores Ronaldo, whereas it's not the same with Argentina and Messi. It actually seems it's the inverse for Ronaldo in the sense that the wider world is not so willing to bestow praise on him and, and elevate him as this world talent. When actually, I think Portugal has talent, definitely, and... I think in this game, we saw it with Renato Sanchez. I think he showed why Bayern Munich were convinced to pay the money they did after what has been, I think, pretty much an eight-month professional career at this stage. And yet, there's still this kind of, if he doesn't do something huge, then it's seen as a, a failure on his part individually. And, and it's it's a weird situation in the sense that I can't think of many other teams that have been in this tournament where we've evaluated them as a team and then this one individual and how they did relative to that team so consistently. Yeah, that's a good point, Chris. I think even as a United supporter, I have to say that a lot of it is the way Cristiano conducts himself. I know that that doesn't uh, reflect on our analysis because we should be able to look past that. But when you see him, uh, you know, look, um, throw his hands up in the air when a pass doesn't come his way or complain about a pass not coming his way or complain that someone else took a shot that he himself would have taken... Uh, it, it doesn't help 
that perception of him. But but it is a good point because we talk about Cristiano in all these negative ways, but he's two games away from doing what the legends of Portuguese football, Figo and Eusebio, couldn't do, which is win a European championship. So your point is well taken. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure where I stand on Cristiano because of that. Mm, and I mean, this is the thing. We look at one of his defining moments as a youngster. It was losing the European championships on home soil to Greece, which right. was a game they were heavily favourites in. Even just kind of his situation, I, I do feel there has come a point now where he has almost started to buy into the narrative of I have to do something big, I have to stand mm-hmm. out, I'm constantly trying to to stay on pace with Lionel Messi. And it, it does come through in this kind of very individualistic approach he seems to have to the game at times. And, and I think it, it can come in a detriment to, to Portugal, the problem being that I'd argue since maybe Pauleta and, and uh, Nuno Gomez retired, you haven't really seen a striker come to the fore and think, yep, that's the man. Hugo Almeida had moments, Elder Postiga had moments, but he's the closest they've got now to that kind of striker. And even that has kind of been through the lucky element of him changing himself at club level from a winger to a forward. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, guys, we will get to previewing the Portugal versus Belgium game. Uh, sorry, Portugal versus the Wales game, as well as reviewing the Wales-Belgium game. But before we do that, let me really quickly tell you about our sponsor, SeatGeek. Uh, so the International Champions Cup is coming up, and it's something that I'm looking forward to personally. I was able to go uh, to see the Manchester United versus Real Madrid at the big house. I saw United versus PSG last year. Uh, so it holds a big pl- big place in my heart. And there are lots of games you can choose from. Uh, I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. And just the other day, I, I pulled it up to look for tickets for the Liverpool versus Chelsea game at the at Rose Bowl in Pasadena. Uh, it's going to be a new Chelsea under Conte. And it will be looking at this game to gauge whether where these players are against a similarly well-drilled uh, Liverpool side under Klopp. So in case you're wondering how you can go and get these tickets, uh, let me let you know that the best thing about all this is that our listeners, our World Soccer Talk listeners, get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. How do you do that? Well, in order to get your $20 rebate, you would download the SeatGeek app, you'd go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, you would add enter promo code WSTPOD, and SeatGeek would send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So go ahead, download the SeatGeek app, and enter promo code WSTPOD today. Karthik, let's talk about Wales, Belgium. Uh, we can, for a second, step away from the bravado of what Wales has done. Uh, and I actually want to ask you uh, a little bit about uh, the fact that we, we, we are going to be basically demolishing Belgium. I think all of us will be in our analysis. But for a minute, Perhaps we should look at the the starting lineup, uh, the, the defense of that team, Munier, Alderweireld, Denayer, as well as Jordan Lukaku, who I think this was his first game of the tournament, uh, Romelu Lukaku's younger brother. So when you look at that defensive line and you remember that they're missing company and Vertonghen, uh, etc., you have, to, I guess there has to be some sympathy of what was a very, very inexperienced backline for Belgium. Certainly there has to be, but Belgium's problem wasn't their back line. It was their midfield. Hmm. They were terrible in midfield. And and the balance was never right in midfield. And and I think, uh, again, Mark Wilmot's got his uh, his tactics all wrong, his team sheet all wrong. He, the, the changes at the back were enforced changes. But the ability for Wales to control this game came from the midfield. It came from the play of Joe Ledley, Joe Allen, and especially Aaron Ramsey. And, and that, that had very little to do with the with the backline changes that uh, Belgium were forced to make, the enforced changes, and, and obviously the pre-tournament injury to company. Right. It had a lot more to do with um, starting Carrasco instead of Fellaini, and then throwing Fellaini on for Carrasco uh, when the, the, the 
the game would have demanded a different sort of change. He went back to what he probably should have done at the beginning of the match. And then I think additionally, just not having the balance in that team right, the balance between where Hazard played and where uh, and, and, and where De Bruyne played going right. forward. I, I just think the whole thing was a, was a disaster in midfield. And you look at the, uh, I, I would say the only guy that showed consistent tactical discipline in that midfield was Axel Witzel. And he was just one midfielder of five. The other four guys were, whoever were playing mm-hmm. at the time, were generally out of position throughout this entire tournament, not just in that game. So that's where I would lay the blame. Not, not at the fact that they had all these changes on the back line. I do have some some. some sympathy about that but I, I don't think that made much of a difference in this match quite honestly Chris talk to me about that midfield then uh, Nengelen scored an excellent goal his second of the tournament at that point it looked like Belgium uh, was was uh, had hit the ground running and was uh, following up a good performance in the round of uh, 16 with with the, what would be a win against Wales but Ashley Williams left completely unmarked and once that Wales gold went in went in that midfield as Karthik mentioned looked absolutely at um didn't didn't look like a unit at all did they no they didn't and and this is what comes I think straight back to Mark Wilmot's desk and it, I found it interesting that the Thibaut Courtois who I consider to be quite a neutral character just in general said that he voiced his thoughts to, to Wilmot in the dressing room but he wouldn't disclose what they were as if almost instantly also kind of disclosing what maybe he thought right. his his opinion was in, in that moment. I, I think the, the thing with Wilmot's is, and it was something that kind of circulated around social media for most, most of the, the aftermath of the game, is that he's quickly wasting what could be a golden generation for that country. Um, and again, I've seen other comparisons to him being the Belgian Harry Redknapp and the notion of him just kind of throwing 11 counters onto the tactics board and then telling them to go out in that formation. There is definitely a lack of organisation for this team. Um, And I think just in general, his tactical decisions are are more than questionable. The fact that Kevin De Bruyne started this tournament out wide when he's very clearly Belgium's best number 10. Um, Equally, his insistence with Mauro and Fellaini, I'm, I'm certainly not looking to make Fellaini a scapegoat in this, as much to say that consistently Wilmot has praised Fellaini said there's no other player in the world like him and it it's just a very bizarre evaluation of a player who I don't think is anywhere near Belgium's most influential player across the board never mind just in midfield um and we can certainly talk and and I think you know Kartik made some solid points there about the defense and and the fact that maybe it's not the first choice of course it's not I think that that is really where a coach earns his money in that sense, though. He, he forges a togetherness a bunch amongst a, a group who maybe aren't the starters, the likes of Laurent Simon, Jordan Lukaku, uh, Jason Deniar, who Deniar in particular, i am been quite high on him um, going into this tournament and into this summer because I think Pep Guardiola could do some good things with him. He was run ragged. He really was. He was... From what I saw watching it back, he was by far the worst Belgian defender with with Jordan Lukaku kind of following him closely behind. Um, and it's I think it's just disappointment if you're a Belgian fan at this point because you've lost a great opportunity against a side that I think is plucky and, and resolute as Wales were. They were also beatable. They, they have not mm-hmm. been sensational themselves this tournament. Um, they've been good in patches, but they've also been beatable. Robert, with Wales, uh, we have to obviously recognize that, uh, as Karthik mentioned, that that midfield did really well. And, of course, there's certain Gareth Bale that we should talk about. But I have to wonder, a lot of us, a lot of people covering the Wales team have uh, basically said that this has had to, this has had to do with the brilliance of players and not given Coleman enough credit. So where do you fall on that, on that spectrum? How much of what we saw were, were good tactics against a Belgium team that lost its structure. And how much is it the fact that these players really love playing with each other? You know, that's an interesting question. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that this, this Wales team is, is has talent, but isn't as deep as a Germany or Belgium for that matter. Um, it's these players coming off the bench necessarily aren't starting for the, the largest clubs in the world. So we're not talking about a team that has tons of depth going forward so there's not much you can do i would say tactically if you're going to there's a drop with some of these Mm -hmm. players coming in and out um 
but there is something to be said for the rah-rah element. And I know more of the, the statistically inclined don't like that. But if you look at, to, to throw more dirt on Belgium, uh, what Vilmont's biggest strength was, it was his ability to inspire his players. Coming into the tournament, that's what you heard, how much the players loved playing for him and so on and so forth and how he could relate to them. Um, and now all you're hearing is the stuff that's being said in the locker room and, and stuff coming out. So I think that Coleman, um, you know, there's so much been said about him and written about him and where his, his journey has come from, how he went from being almost fired to to really taking Wales to where they are. And I think he's he's been able to build over time a cohesive unit. Part of that is tactics, finding the right tactical mix, the the three five two look, um, who goes in where, and and what players play best in what position. I mean, heck, he found up the place where Aaron Ramsey should be playing, and for that reason <laughs> alone, um, I'm I'm willing to to call him my favorite manager. But um, <laughs> so part of it is bringing these players up together, finding where they play well, but also keeping this this. Um, God, I'm going to sound so corny saying this. This Welsh spirit. Um, this identity of this team where you have a Gareth Bale who's uh, possibly the greatest player, one of the greatest players in the world, definitely, and these other players, and, and you don't... This isn't a team that looks like a Portugal, for example, where you have one of the greatest players in the world and then other players. This is a team that's a cohesive, that knows their roles, um, and gets behind it, and they're cocky. They're willing to poke the you know their, their fingers in England's eye, for example, but they're also... Um, a cohesive unit that plays well together. So part of it's tactics, but a lot of it is coming up together, this core unit um, that knows what they need to do when they're on the pitch. And I think Belgium can kind of look across the pitch and see that and wonder why they haven't been able to do that with a lot of, a lot of similar advantages of players coming up through this uh, system at the same time. Yeah. Karthik, uh, we've talked so much about Ramsey and he will be missing in the semifinal against Portugal, along with Ben Davies. Portugal themselves will have Will Carvalho out, so there'll be a shuffle in that midfield. So give me your thoughts on, on the first semifinal of the European Championships. Yeah, I think it's going to be very difficult for Wales without Aaron Ramsey. The important thing for Chris Coleman this match <laughs> is to figure out a way of playing with where Joe Allen and Joe Ledley remain in their their current positions, which are not stationary positions, but they're not the most mobile positions. Mm. And they're positions where they've been able to kind of uh, mop up and, and, and keep the shape while Ramsey has done spectacular things, uh, box to box and end to end. The, the, the work rate of Aaron Ramsey in this in this competition has been phenomenal and then it allows you to continue to have a free role for Gareth Bale playing off whichever striker whether it's Sam Vokes or Hal Robson Connor both of whom scored in this game so obviously it's due to the tactical matchup that'll depend on on that who Coleman starts up top I think it'll probably be Robson Connor I think he might be a better matchup for for Portugal but I think that's the key not having Ramsey's really going to hurt I, I think Wales can still win if they had Aaron Ramsey they would win so that's uh that's the way I'm looking at this game Chris, it looks like to me one of the things Wales has to do is uh play a deeper line than they have been playing in in this tournament uh because you cannot give Nani and Cristiano the 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 uh, ability to get past you because uh, any ball that's played through um, no one on that Wales defense, including Neil Taylor will be able to keep up with the pace of Nani and Cristiano. Exactly. I think that's a, a fantastic point. <clears throat> the, the other thing you have to be very careful and, and wary of when you drop your line back a little bit like that is you have to shoot off the shooting lanes as well. Yeah. Um, and Ronaldo Sanchez scored a goal from that area. That would be of danger. Yeah, exactly. And, and, it's those small combinations sort of inside the penalty box and those shots from 20, 25 yards. I think on a good day, tend to go high and wide and, and don't trouble you, but can also, it just takes one of them to fly in and, and really undo the Welsh plan. I think the thing for them is is what I kind of have seen with them most of the tournament. It, it's going to be that quick break. Um, the concerns or one of the concerns I had for them pre-tournament was would they have enough pacey outlets outside of Gareth Bale to link in those counter-attacking moments now they have resoundingly proved me to be an idiot because Hal Robson Kanu has been just that um, I think if they can keep that fluency up if they can just maintain their composure because again this is a new stage for a lot of these players um, a lot of people will reduce this to Bale versus Ronaldo realistically I think this is is more about the supporting cast and those who don't get 
enough of the column inches to, to really shine the likes of, of maybe Ashley Williams, Chris Gunn to, to come to the fore. Because I think if there's one thing you can say about this Portuguese side, it's it's that maybe there's not that great deal of strength in those fullbacks. Um, mm-hmm. They came into this tournament with Vierinha, who is a, a former Porto winger, now turned fullback at Wolfsburg. Not the biggest, um, not the greatest in the air, I would argue. How can they maximise that to their advantage um, if he plays? Equally, LSL, for, for my one, is, is not a traditional fullback. He's someone that is versatile. And I think when you have a player like that, it's it's always an opportunity to try and um, expose it. It's, it's one of those things I'll be curious to see how Chris Coleman lines up because he has a few different options. And I think this is, in that sense, the biggest test for him as a manager in this tournament. Robert, it's crazy, right? When we did the previews, uh, it was Karthik, Chris, uh, Gabe, and myself, and I talked about how I didn't rate Portugal's defense. Ironically, their defense has been just fine, except for that 3-3 game against Hungary. They've not really <laughs> conceded many goals. It's been up top that they've had the problem. So uh, in spite of mistakes that were made by Cedric Suarez, etc., the real issue, I guess, with Portugal is, are they going to be able to get past that Wales defense? Are they going to be able to get Cristiano on the ball? And when Cristiano gets on the ball, is it going to be Cristiano of two months ago or of right now? Because there seems to be a difference. Yeah, and and I think that's the scary thing if you're a Wales fan or someone pulling for them is you're relying on a Cristiano Ronaldo to continue a, a form of play that hasn't been as stellar. Um, yeah. I think, you're, you know, if, if Wales' defense has proven to be, for the most part, good in this tournament, but... Um, Portugal has just just done enough to get by. Whether that's veteran uh, ability or pure dumb luck, I don't know. Probably a little bit of both. But I mean, this is a team that's scraped by enough to get through to this point in the tournament. And the fact that they could turn on some weapons or, or have some weapons turn on and, and cause some problems like a Ronaldo is is uh, a scary thing. Karthik, let's talk about the other semifinal, and we'll start with. Uh reviewing the two games which is germany italy and then france iceland from today so germany italy karthik uh, went to pk's uh, we know about pk's being a lottery etc but absolutely nail-biting stuff um, not a good advert for <laughs> premier league based players uh, including manchester united players but let's talk about the start of the game what i want to ask you is the the biggest news when the starting lineups came out was the fact that germany uh, seemingly switched to a 3-5-2 and uh, beyond the fact that he went matched, uh, that Jurgi uh, Lowe matched up Conte's system, I kept wondering if if he played a bit of a psychological battle. He won a bit of a psychological battle as well. Because we know Conte has been giving uh, Italy, the Italian players, this idea of, that, of being underdogs, etc. And now when Germany, arguably one of the best teams in the world, switches their formation to match yours... All of a sudden, you don't; those players don't feel like underdogs anymore. So, do you think that contributed to uh, how this game played out? Perhaps, perhaps it did. I, I think Germany has a, a lot more talent. They have a lot more accomplished players, at least at the club level. And again, uh, Italy tactically uh, was was quite good. Now, I, I have to say that there was some sl- sloppiness passing out of the back in particular from, from mm-hmm. Italy, yeah. from the from that back three that we haven't seen at, at any other point in the tournament that we saw uh, on Saturday. But I, I thought, again, Germany had a hard time breaking down a good tactical side. And they... Um, Jurgi Lowe is getting all kinds of credit for for this tactical uh, tactical piece, but what he's done is he's essentially put in place a similar tactical system to Conte with better players, and still it was a draw. Mm. For I mean, they won on penalty kicks, but it was or advanced on penalty kicks. I, I like to point that out; they did not win. Uh, so I'm not sure that all the all the uh, praise for Germany is warranted. Although uh, he found a way to get them through this match, maybe if you play in that four-two-three-one formation that Germany's been playing with in this tournament and played for through much of the World Cup and the last Euros, actually they've basically been playing that formation now for a while. Uh, you get beat by this Italian team, which has found a way to use the three-five-two to beat teams in that in that now conventional formation, right? The four-two-three-one mm-hmm. in this era is what the four-four-two used to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess that that's uh, that, that that that's worth noting. But I I, um, I still give Italy a lot of credit, and I think uh, Conte certainly was the most impressive manager in this this tournament. Chris, we we got a little bit of a criticism on Twitter um, based on the fact that 
us as a podcast have not given Germany enough credit. So where do you stand on this German team uh, based on the fact that even though we keep writing them off in terms of their performances haven't been that great, etc., here they are in the semifinal uh, and probably favorites to go and win the whole thing. So where do you stand on this German team? I, th I think they've shown adaptability. Um, they came into this tournament really kind of lacking fullbacks. I'm starting to think that might be a theme for the tournament, really. Not a wealth of yeah. quality fullbacks. <laughs> um, and and for me, you're right in that sense that they haven't always been scintillating. They maybe have not as been, have not been, excuse me, as good as they were in the World Cup. The thing you can't really argue with is they're getting the results. Um, in the penalty shootout, for example, they showed the kind of cool mentality and the right kind of composure for that moment, which again is something I kind of grew up associating with Germany is you put them in a clutch situation like a penalty shootout and there's a good chance you're going to lose against Germany. Um, I, I think a lot of this team is in transition. Though. The, the spine is very good. Um, I think the spine of it has talent, definitely. The difficulty they had with Italy, I think, is they faced an exceptionally well-drilled team yeah. um, in Conte's side. And if you looked at the chalkboards, I, I kind of put them up on, on Twitter uh, yesterday just to kind of appease Chelsea fans and keep them happy. <laughs> Meza Ozil, I, I don't think, registered a single pass into the penalty area, not a single pass into the, the six-yard box. Thomas Muller had a similarly... Uh, frugal day in terms of what he could achieve and what he could create and do and that goal aside I, I, again I didn't see a, a huge wealth of creation from Germany on the one hand yes you can lament their attacking ability I think you can also have an idea running alongside that that says that Italy were exceptionally good defensively mm. um, that's where I think this Germany team is though to, to, to answer the actual question is they're a team transitioning into its next phase and some of that will be awkward. Some of the games in that transition will be awkward. But I think what you can say is, as long as they're getting the results, they're moving towards the end goal that they want, which is to win this European Championship and build on the back of that World Cup success. Robert, uh, Italy is another team that's in transition and as someone that supports the Italian national team and all things Italy, including pizza, uh, we should talk to you about where you see this team going forward. Conte will leave uh, and... I guess the big question for me is uh, where does Italy produce that next big striker? Because an argument can be made that had they had players better than Pelé and Eder, both are good players, but they're not uh, at the levels of Roberto Baggio and players of that ilk. Had they had better finishers, had they had better forwards, uh, Italy would have probably gone further in this tournament. Yeah, you know, you're, you're right. I think it's unfortunate, understandable, but unfortunate that Conte is moving on because he's been a real gift to Italian football, both at the club and at the national level. Um, but the new manager that they have coming in is a gentleman who has spent a lot of time with some of the smaller teams and just uh, coming off of uh, Torino, I believe most recently, Giampiero Ventura, who I think will bring a nice perspective um, to this club. Would you um, say he's ace? I'm sorry. Oh, jeez. Yes. Yes, yes. I would. Well, we'll find out if he's an ace. Um, <laughs> uh, different kind of football, though. Um, but I think for this team, um, you know, it, it, as as long as you have the BBC line in the back, I think you're gonna you're gonna have a strength in Italy. Um, obviously, that's that's aging. Um, but the thing to also to remember about this Italian team is, in this match against Germany, they came in with probably their C midfield. If you think about it. Mm. Um, there, a lot of their A midfield was hurt prior to this tournament, and then with De Rossi missing and Monta missing as well, I mean, there's probably a B lineup. So there's some talent in talented Italian midfielders that are still participating in World Cups and Euros. Um, some younger players that are, are there coming through. Um, I think the big thing is what's the next Italian identity? Um, yeah. If a Buffon stays and, and this defense stays the same, is it? Is it this still the same style that can Ventura replicate this style that Conti kind of uh, perfected in Italian club soccer? Or is it going to have to be a different style built on some of these younger, smaller, quicker strikers or, or someone, you know, uh, maybe a little bit more experienced uh, types? It, it'll be interesting. It's going to be in flux, but I do think that there is more talent coming through the Italian system than people will realize. It's just the names aren't as big as they had been um, mm -hmm. 20 years ago. But, the, I mean, you have to say the dance moves that Zaza showed were 
better than anything we've seen before uh, in that PK. That's pretty. Uh, I, the only person that might have worse, he might be the only person that has worse dance moves than I do. <laughs> Take your word for it. Karthik, let's talk about France, Iceland. Uh, the, coming into this game, the story was always going to be, uh, you know, David Goliath. And sometimes, uh, unfortunately, David loses to Goliath. And th- th- that's kind of what happened here, isn't it? Um, with Iceland putting up, a, putting up a fight, but in general, France just had too much talent on the day. Right. I mean, this time they were playing France. They weren't playing England. So <laughs> that kind of... David that, versus that, David. Right. I mean, you know, yeah, it was um, it was David versus David in the last game, right? I yeah. mean, we have this perception that's created by media narratives that England is some great power in this sport, but uh, they're not, okay? They're, they're, if you look at their body of work over the course of the last three years, there's there's very little to separate Iceland and England. Whereas... France is one of the giants in this sport, and they're hosting this tournament, and, they, and they're, they're a team that hasn't really peaked yet. Well, maybe now they have peaked in this tournament, but they haven't peaked coming into this match. So it was always going to be a dangerous one for Iceland. But they still acquitted themselves well. They still uh, played some football. They kept the ball a little bit more, actually. Their passing was probably better today than it was against England, quite honestly. And uh, obviously, the game was stretched early on, so maybe it's it's not a fair comparison, but they uh, they were able to still score two goals and uh, I, I think uh, gave us a great thrill in this tournament and all, also saved all of us from the enduring the six days of patriotic uh, and jingoistic fervor that would have come with an England versus France game in a major tournament, mm-hmm. in a knockout stage of a major tournament. Can you imagine what the last six days would have been like uh, before the inevitable England defeat to France by probably a similar scoreline to this? Maybe it wouldn't have been 5-2, it would have been 3-0 or 3-1. But we would have had six days of just uh, absolute... Uh, rubbish from our friends in, in, in the UK press, Chris's friends on Fleet Street, a lot of them. So uh, I, I'm, I, we, we all owe Iceland a debt of gratitude, not only for the way they played football and, and, and the inspirational story, but for uh, saving us from that, uh, that, 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 that fervor that comes in every major tournament where England makes a knockout stage, where those of us on this show and others who watch the sport a little more objectively know England is just going to end up losing whenever they play the first big uh, power that they face in a knockout stage. And in this case, it would have been France. So uh, Iceland saved us from that. Chris, talk to me about some of the lessons that uh, teams like the U.S. men's national team and England can learn from what Iceland has been able to do in the last, just the last five years. We're not even talking about a generation of footballers. In the last five years, the, the progress they've made. Can you opine on that a little bit? Yeah, I I, th- I think they can learn very different lessons. Um, some some will overlap. I think the ones that overlap is you need a really recognised system that you can teach each player as a team, but then also on an individual level, so they know what they're doing relative to those around them. I haven't seen that with England in this tournament. I also haven't seen that with the US during Copa America. Um, I've seen players that knew where to stand, but maybe not what to do. Mm. Um, and and that, for me, is quite a damning indictment on, on both coaches, one of whom is, is no longer in the job um, in question in Roy Hodgson. I think for the US, what they can take from it is actually you do need infrastructure um, mm. to help develop players. It's, it's perhaps timely that um, there has been a, a lawsuit filed for these training compensation fees. Mm-hmm. Um, or whatever the correct term is. The US, for me, has to get a little bit more invested in that side of things in terms of developing. I'm I'm not entirely convinced yet that, that Europe is the cure-all elixir for developing American players and that they need to be there. Certainly, the ones who have plateaued in the US at the right age can benefit from going there and testing themselves. But it isn't for everybody. Um, Landon Donovan kind of proves that he's someone that the, the culture, the, the situation, the, the pressures, it just didn't work for him. Um, and that will be the case for, for other players as well. And I, and I fear that you set a dangerous precedent when you teach young players, both male and female, that if you can't make it in Europe, then you're not realizing your potential. Mm-hmm. Um because I don't know if that's necessarily true. In fact, I don't think there's a necessary way. I think it is plainly untrue. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I can't help but also look at some of the things they've done with their coaching badges and the fact that they have one, I think the stat was one coach to every 
700 players as opposed to 20,000 or something like that. I, I know that's a little bit difficult because Iceland's population is much less than England's and et cetera. But uh, the this, fact that... But this yeah. is... This has been a consistent problem for England since you address, bring this up. England, you, you uh, Iceland's is maybe an anomaly or outlier because they have such a small population. But if you if you compare the number of registered players to certified UEFA uh, pro license holders and NA yeah. license holders in Spain, Germany, uh, Holland. Belgium and France to England, it's it, it, the the English number is really unflattering. So, uh, England is not developing enough coaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, full stop. That 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 has been a problem now for about a decade. So the Iceland one may be an extreme comparison, but actually you've hit on something really important, Apun, which maybe we can explore in another show, which is that England is is developing roughly half or a third as many coaches per registered player as France, Belgium, Holland, Germany. Germany, Spain, Italy. And that's a big, big problem. Yeah, definitely worth talking about on another day. Robert, uh, let's talk about France because we're not giving them enough credit. Some of the football they played in that first half was nothing short of magnificent. Uh, in particular, that Antonin Griezmann uh, goal where, where Giroud just left the ball, uh, played a dummy, and uh, Griezmann went around the defender and played a delicious chip. Some of that football was absolutely brilliant and it bodes well for the host doesn't it you know you i think we saw like you said the best of france in this uh, the beginning of this game um we saw you know some of the players that had been looked up we're looking upon as some of the you know the talisman for this group play really well i mean when you have Giroud scoring goals and griezmann scoring goals it, everything's to go seems to go really well for france so i think that they were obviously the better team as we mentioned in this game um but I feel like they hadn't had that firing on full cylinders moment, uh, to use an American cliche, that, that that game where you just look at them and go, huh, you know, they could win this. Um, and I think even though they were the better team ever that everybody knew going into this, this was kind of their moment, at least their half, where they showed that they're a dangerous team and, and to kind of uh, – help their fans feel a little bit more at ease. So whether that carries over into the next two matches, we'll see obviously a better opponent, but you've got to feel good about the fact that everybody came out healthy. Everybody came out uh, in good form and um, they're playing at home. So uh, this is, this is a much different France team that I think we saw two games ago. Yeah. They'll they'll have Conte back as well for, for the, semi-final. Uh, Karthik, we got a question on Twitter, which leads into the preview uh, from Mark Curlin, and he asks, can Germany contain a rampaging ascendant ascendant France? It's going to be difficult for them. I, I, it'll be interesting to see if, if Germany goes back to a four-man back line with the mm-hmm. four uh, center backs uh, or, or uh, Kimmich uh, uh, at uh, right back and, and let him bomb forward. Uh, he, by the way, has been one of the great revelations in European football. I neglected to mention him when we reviewed that game. So thank you for the question on Twitter. It gives me an opportunity to mention uh, Kimmich, uh, a player that Pep Guardiola uh, seems to have identified out of the just the, the, the number of guys from Bayern that, that, that were in their system. And, and uh, a player, he, 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 he's very much molded into a, a Philip Long esque not, not not necessarily at the quality level of Philip Lom, but a Philip Lom esque uh, player in a re- in a really short period of time for both Bayern and, and now Germany, it could hold the key to this and and uh, could really transform Germany because I don't I don't think with their form four man full back uh, uh, center back back line which got them through the World Cup it, it, somehow in in uh, in in uh, Brazil, but they were playing a much weaker France team, right, in that quarterfinal. Mm-hmm. And then Brazil wasn't very good. We know that. And they got them in the semifinal. And then somehow Iguain missed the chance in the final. So they got through it and they won the World Cup. But I think they're going to play a much more dynamic French side with better movement. I think uh, France... Uh, Despite Lastiara and Benzema, three players I thought were going to be so key for them in this in this tournament, and it took them some time to adapt. They now have in uh, Angola Conte, a, a player he didn't play today, obviously, but a player yeah. that's able to kind of tie together that midfield uh, in a way he did for Leicester City also as they won the Premier League. And you've got then the ability for their other midfielders, Pogba uh, and Payet in particular, or their other, other kind of attacking midfielders, if you will, to have a freer role. I know Deschamps says he wants uh, Pogba to be more of a number six, but he can pop, pop in there and play as a number eight. Uh, 
Uh, well, I think he said he wanted him to be a number eight, right? Or did he say he wanted him to be a number six? But he can play as a number eight yeah. uh, against Germany if you have four fullbacks and you have a kind of uh, a, a, a less dynamic line. So that may be the key. I think uh, Germany might stick with this uh, 3 5 2 given the matchup. And then you have to account for Olivier Giroud's movement. He, for a number nine, is very mobile and I think very, very good. His finishing obviously isn't so good, but the. Um, the runs he makes and the space mm-hmm. he creates and the target he provides on crosses and on set pieces is uh, as good as anyone in this tournament. So uh, Germany's going to have their hands full. Now, of course, going forward, France is uh, going forward. Germany is going to uh, put France uh, under the gun. I-, I think France's back line, especially their older fullbacks. And we can talk about this when we preview the match further. I think their older fullbacks are going to have a hard time. Sonia and Evra. I think this is going to be a bad matchup for them, but um, should be fun. Should be an exciting game. Chris, Germany are going to be missing Sami Khedira, Gomez, Hummels, Schweinsteiger is almost certainly out at this point. Uh, so we're going to have to see some players coming in. Uh, maybe Emre Chan comes in. And I was wondering, kind of our left field almost now, given how things have gone for him lately, maybe even bringing in Podolsky for this game. Yeah, I mean, look, this is the thing. Uh, how adaptable are Germany? I think we're about to find out. Um, this squad will be tested to its its very limits. As you said there, Marie Chan can come in. Um, potentially Podolsky could come in. The The feeling I have is, is that really as long as as long as the spine sort of survives, I feel as if the the animal will continue to breathe. Um, because again, they, they haven't been, as I said before, that blessed with wide options um you know maybe this is an instance where they what about question. draxler yeah draxler's a funny one i mean there there's a mystery wrapped in an enigma um <laughs> in the sense that you know he's at, he's at schalke and, and arsene wenger decides not to pay the money now i'm not saying he is a de facto perfect talent spotter that but the fact that he didn't do that makes me think there's got to be some kind of concern in there um I do wonder if this point, if at this point, excuse me, Yogi Lowe is a little bit regretful over not bringing Marco Royce and giving mm-hmm. him that opportunity. Um, but again, this is so steeped in hindsight, you can barely see the surface. Um, and I think for, for Germany, they've got the versatility. Uh, having Mario Gomez out means that I believe Gotze comes in and plays false nine. It's a position he's played before, so you're not necessarily rewriting the the entire handbook at this point you're just skipping to a uh, an earlier version of the, the software to use some very really bad analogies <laughs> <laughs> floppy disk let's talk about floppy disks and uh, uh and cd drives while we're at it um i, I actually agree with you because i i think uh i think it was uh um who was it on ESPN who was also suggested that it will be good send a false nine? Oh, it was Michael Ballack. Michael Ballack talked about uh, the false nine. So maybe that's how they'll play. Um, Podolsky obviously has been out of the game for the most part, hasn't really played much in recent times. Uh, we know how things played out with him when he was alongside Juru at Arsenal. Um, so yeah, maybe that's a better shot. Gentlemen, what I want to do is go around uh, and and talk about who we would think will win these semifinals and then predict a final winner as well, because the next time we record, it'll be after the final. So, Robert, let's start with you, the winners of the semifinal uh, and your final winner for the, for the European Championships. You know, as much as I hate to say it, I think Portugal advances against Wales. I think losing Aaron Ramsey's and Ben Davies is going to be a, a huge blow for them and their chances. I think they'll play the host nation. Uh, I think Germany overall is a probably more talented squad, but I think there's some questions there and, and there's uh, momentum does matter. So I think that you'll see France uh, hoisting the trophy over a despondent Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> Kartik? Yeah, I'm going to go with France uh, to win this tournament. I think they win, uh, they beat Germany, and then I think they beat, would be an easy pick if Ramsey, uh, the Davies, that's a good good uh, shout, Robert. Davies being out also matters, and I don't know if that means they've, they, Neil Taylor's been so effective as a as a wing back. I don't know if they want to move him J- to. James Collins will probably I think James Collins, yeah. that's, that's a rough one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess because of that, I'm going to have to pick, uh, I, I don't know, actually. I I, I want to pick Wales, but uh, 
because I, I, I just Portugal hasn't shown that they can they can take advantage of any of these these opportunities to win a game in 90 minutes. They still haven't won a game within 90 minutes. So, um, yeah, why don't we pick Wales? And then I think Wales loses to France in the final in the France Germany game. I think the weakness for France is Evra and Sonia. Uh, potentially how they're able to uh to cope with the movement of a, a goods of he starts a draxler uh, the uh the, the the balls that tony Kroos plays and most especially metzadozil but uh, the matchup going the other way as i outlined a few minutes ago i think heavily favors france yeah. and i think france is, is going to beat them and it could be it could be two nil or it could be one of those one nil games where germany never really is in it um i just have a feeling france is beginning to peak they're beginning to find their form and it would be amazing if they won this tournament having uh, omitted Denzema. Having lost uh, lost Diara, who I thought was going to be the key for them in midfield right. prior to the tournament, uh, they lost him in the last friendly. And Varane, who is their best defender, so mm-hmm. they would have won this tournament without the spine of their team being there. Uh, I guess that's what home cooking does. <laughs> Chris, I mean, I've gone against Wales for this entire tournament and consistently seemed like a an idiot. Um, the thing I have against it is Aaron Ramsey's absence just seems too great uh, an obstacle to to traverse. Um, I mean, I, I'm well aware I'll never get a hotel room in in Wales at this point if I keep <laughs> it up. Um, but but I think I think Portugal advance forward. I think France. Uh, I actually think France could choke. Um, I, I just have this feeling that that it gets them um, the pressure of of '98 and and reliving that moment, if you will, and, and Pogba trying to be mm. like Zidane, who in fairness, you know, did, didn't have the greatest um, right. World Cup at that point. There's, there's been a fair bit of revisionism about that, as often happens with, uh, with beautiful stories that, where the facts don't line up. I still think that, uh, that Germany will take it, though. And then in the final, I, I just think that Portugal will tank it again. I think uh, there's just something in the water down there, as, as beautiful a country as it is that stops them ever being true winners in that sense. Let me just throw this out there before we, we, we say goodbye to everyone. Uh, Portugal has been this team that has been consistently uh, underperforming in major tournaments. There's this, team, there's this side, and we're going back to even Euro 96 or, or uh, Euro 2000, where they were very, very good. This team that has had, at times, some outstanding performances in group stage play, gotten out of the group, and they've had a stinker in the knockout stage. Would it, would it be a nice kind of... Uh, bow tie on everything if they somehow won this tournament after having drawn every game in the group stage and then right. that's the way Portugal wins the major tournament not the way they were rampaging in, in, in Euro 2008 remember they just ripped through the group stage and everyone mm-hmm. thought they were going to win the tournament it was a fait accompli it was going to be them or the Dutch and, and both teams choked in the quarterfinals or the way they uh, they looked in Euro 2012 when they, 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 they lost in penalties or Euro, Euro 2004 when they hosted and they were the best team and lost to Greece in, in, in that in that shocker. I mean, maybe this is the way they win a major tournament when uh, they've played poorly and no one's fancying them. Karthik, you, you literally took away my what I was going to say. For, for me, Portugal is going to win out. Uh, they're going to win the semifinal. Germany's going to beat France. Uh, I think uh, France will choke. I think they peaked for this one game, but I think uh, the likes of Boateng, who in spite of being uh, throwing up his arms in the air for no reason, has been the defender of this tournament. Uh, and I think he will handle uh, Giroud just okay. Uh, and Germany will, uh, sorry, uh, Germany will beat France to get to the final, but Portugal will beat Germany, thereby making it one of the, uh, as we talk about revisionism, 10 years from now, we'll be talking about Cristiano's brilliant performance at the 2016 uh, European Championships. Because as uh, as Chris <laughs> pointed out, uh, people forget how poor Zidane was until the semifinal of the World Cup in 98. People will forget how poor Cristiano was, except for the Hunger Game, uh, until the semifinal and final of these European Championships. So Portugal will probably win. Uh, and we will be back on Sunday, a week from today, to discuss exactly how it played out and which one of us got those predictions right uh, so on behalf of everyone here at world soccer talk on behalf of chris hanaj robert hay and myself nipun chopra i wish you a happy july 4th and chris and uh, karthik enjoy your football <laughs>